everybody. Welcome into another edition of Head Coach U. I am Brian Fisher, joined as always by former BYU and Virginia head coach Bronco Mendenhall and another one of your peers from the ACC back in the day, Bronco. Thrilled to welcome on former Duke and former Old Miss head coach David Cutcliffe, now special assistant there at the SEC. David, thank you so much for stopping by. I am thrilled to, to see you guys and your your topic, which is uh, college football, is everything I love talking about. Well, I mean, you've been around the game for, for, for so long. Uh, what, what's this new role that uh, you got going on there with the SEC? And, and how is how's Greg Sankey as a boss? I got to ask well, that first and foremost. He's built an incredible team. I mean, it's, it's like everything else. The guy at the top has to surround himself with great people and winners. And Greg Sankey has done that. This is an important role anyway, and it's increasingly become more important uh, as we see realignment and all the changes that are occurring, good or bad, for college uh, athletics. But he is um, he's a hands-on guy. He's, he's, he's involved. He's, uh, he's, a, he's just a plain worker. And uh, again, the people. In my job, I actually have a Dwight Schrute title, if you've watched The Office ever before. I'm a special assistant to the commissioner for football relations. And really, when you say, well, what do you do? Relations is a word shortened from relationships. And so, for example, I've been on the phone this morning talking to and, and Coach uh, Mendenhall can appreciate this to all the head operations guys at the schools. I don't bug the coaches, but I want to know if there's anything they need from me or anything I can do. And those are people that can walk in the head coach's office at any time and basically interrupt them. And then just making sure that, you know, hey, everything good, everything okay. I go to games, I go to practices, uh, which is sometimes a little hard when you're a coach. I I go to practices, I, I get out on that grass, I want to go to work. Uh, and that's not what I'm there for. So uh, interesting job. Am I making a difference? I would I would love to be able to find an avenue uh, to maybe, and in, in, in Coach Mendenhall and I will talk about this, toward finding some right answers where there seems to be none in uh, where we're headed in college football. Well, so so much there as as I listen to you talk about Greg Sankey and the team that he's built and and contrasting that to the teams you've led of 125 young men. And now you find yourself part of a team of a different type of team. I'm wondering if you could just, um, yeah, your first impressions of comparing and contrasting just because the world of college football is so unique and being a head football coach is so unique and the power five level is so unique. And now you find yourself part of a, a different kind of team. I'm just wondering maybe what similarities, if any, and maybe what, what differences and what thoughts you've had. You know, it's interesting. I think I've brought a little bit. They've never had a coach in a role here. Uh, I brought a little bit of that team. Uh, some of my coworkers, particularly the young ones, uh, a little motivation, a little energy, a little look at, you know, what's happening in, in the world of athletics, no matter what the sport is, and helping them understand a coach's challenges, but build a little camaraderie here in, in, in the building. Um, yeah. I make, I got some guys uh, that I get with and we go for some brisk walks. 
uh, you know, don't just sit at a desk all day long. <laughs> Good gosh, you know, and you got to get outside and there's a healing power to Mother Nature. We all know that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're right across from uh, the protective stadium where the USFL plays, UAB plays. Every now and then I go over there and I, you know, get some stadium steps in, man. Come on, you know. And so uh, that part of it's similar. I think the biggest thing for me, Coach, that's been the most rewarding is that I have now 14, soon to be 16 schools that I go visit. And first place I go when I go in there is the equipment room. Mm. When you go to the equipment room, you're going to be near the locker room. You're also going to know what the pulse of a program is by being in the equipment room. Um, I go to the training room. I talk to the trainers. I go to the video center, talk to those folks. I bump into players everywhere before I even ever worry about getting to a coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a pulse to all of that in a, in a football program. And so instead of having one equipment room, I got 14 of them. And I've really tried to develop relationships instead of one operations person, 14 of them. Mm-hmm. And not that I have much to do with the players, but, you know, I'm going to interact with them some. And that gives me a little bit of a fix because the reason that I got into coaching wasn't to make a difference in the game itself. It was to try to help young people mm-hmm. better their outcome. Uh, it was to try to to help young people push through problems in all the parts of living off the field. And so I've had young men that, you know, that known who I was come up and start wanting to to have good conversation. I'll give you an example. My first spring of doing this, I went to Alabama and Bryce Young immediately wanted to, you know, sit down and talk. And I was just blown away by his maturity and what questions he was asking. And uh, so I, you know, Bronco, it is a little bit of a fix that way for those that, you know, that's that's what we did every day of our lives at Seaplot, right? Yeah, there, man. There's so much that I just I just heard you talk about. The camaraderie was a, a word that jumped out early on, um, and a head coach and his staff and his team, and all of the different parts. Uh, there's a very unique and and galvanizing camaraderie that comes through doing hard things, and and that that to me is something that. Uh, um, I'm sure that there might be, uh, you find yourself looking for that at, a, at more of a depth. You might find yourself missing it, or maybe you're recreating it. I'm wondering just if you could expound on the camaraderie part for a minute. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't, well, I miss it because it's yeah. not as intimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that's a funny word, a choice of words, but a football office becomes an intimate place, a, mm-hmm. a building. You're there so much of the time. Mm-hmm. It is truly family. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a thread of guys that I've worked with. Uh, it's maybe 30 guys that we're on text. And we do, you know, little motivational things to each other. And we wish each other happy birthdays. And whether guys are retired or coaching somewhere else, it doesn't matter. We, we still, you know, these are NFL coaches, they're college coaches, they're retired coaches. Um, it warms my heart 
just to see their names pop up. Mm-hmm. So to say that I don't miss that, you better believe it. Yes, the players were the re- only reason we had a job. They're number one. But those strong relationships never die. Mm. I know you have that same group of people that you feel that same way about. I, I do. I We have a thread almost identical to the one you just described. And folks on the podcast have heard me say this already. And I'm not sure I shared this with you, David, but for some, it'll be redundant. When I chose to, to pause and step away from Virginia, lots of texts and phone calls came in. Almost all were from former players. Um, and next most, almost all were from former coaches or staff members. And it was really interesting and, and enlightening to me that um, to this point of a huge sample size that only one text has mentioned a game or a score or a season. Yeah. Every other text or, or communication has mentioned a moment, which refers to relationships, which is galvanized or uh, connected through camaraderie. Right. And, and, and like minded people doing hard things. And so when I, I don't think it's possible not to miss that when you're doing something you really care about with people you really care about. But what's interesting, and I think maybe for our listeners is, again, the perspective of these young people were at the time and what the world is thinking and just based on rankings and score. Right. And maybe even revenue now and ratings, what they're remembering, not maybe, not maybe yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what they're, what they're remembering and wanting most, um, is mentorship, a friend connection and a relationship, which it just struck me when you said that. Well, as perfectly said, as you always do, I've sat in a lot of meetings with Bronco at the AFCA and when he speaks, everyone listens because he has a great way to frame things. So a podcast is absolutely a, a perfect uh, platform for you. Um, it, it is all about what you just said. And that won't change with players. People read and see, and, and there's always been a few elements, people, period, any any at walk alive, there's selfish people. But ultimately, selfish people get weeded out of that environment you just talked about. Mm-hmm. I, I think of that song, Thanks for the Memories, mm-hmm. uh, that old, old song. Mm-hmm. And I find myself kind of thinking through that as I do remember yeah. learning from players, learning from co-workers, uh, growing as a person in all sorts of ways, professionally, mm-hmm. spiritually, personally, you know, just from the group of people that you become associated with. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I do believe that revenue has been the impact that has been changed things the, the most. Yeah. Away from what what we were paid to, because uh, it's certainly not what you got into it for, because there was no money to be made initially, and and, and that didn't that didn't matter. Um, but now, because of presidents and directors of athletics and the pressures they face uh, fiscally, um, the powers that be really is about revenue. Uh, yeah. Not just winning and losing. Winning and losing impacts revenue. Uh, and that's where it all bounces back to. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and uh, that uh, I think the revenue component has been 
uh, present the entire time, more so in the background maybe as possibly you started as a head coach and certainly as, as I did. On my first coaching job, I made $4,500 for the season only at Snow Junior College, and I was commuting an hour and a half each way, and then I trained horses the rest of the year so I could do it again. Um, and I, I felt lucky to be able to um, be with the young people, and I felt lucky to be able to be trying to make a difference um, through the game of football and, and building young men. And as you mentioned, over time, the revenue has kind of moved uh, maybe it's been uh, 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 present the whole time, but I think what it's it's clearly now front and center and paramount. And the motive, quite frankly, for I think for a while, right, head coaches moving from job to job, right, more opportunity, more money. Certainly, assistant coaches moving job to job. Now, players, right, that's possible for them. Uh, and most of the time when they transfer, and I, I don't know the percentage, but they're moving school to school, mostly for more opportunity and maybe some now for money. And now um, schools moving from one coast to the other, um, quite frankly, for more opportunity, more money. So the same motive kind of is, is woven through there. And what I always appreciated about Coach Cutcliffe um, was the wisdom and the perspective of applying what's good for young people regardless of the context uh, and what was happening throughout the game. And so I just listened to you talk about showing up to 13 or th uh, 13 different locker rooms uh, and equipment rooms and training rooms, et cetera. I'm wondering when you arrive at the different schools that you're visiting, uh, how much the players do you think are similar uh, school to school, right? And comparing them to your players at Duke and Ole Miss, and how much are they the same? Are they more the same than different? I guess is the first thing I would say. And then maybe as a follow-up, can you sense the culture, really a distinct culture in different programs as you go from one to the other? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And it would be one that a football coach would, would wonder. Um, <laughs> The, um, they're different. The Southeastern Conference has a, has an upper tier, a middle tier, and a lower mm -hmm. tier, like most conferences do. That doesn't mean there are bad cultures in a lower tier. Some of the better cultures I see come from that because, quite frankly, depending upon where you are, you better create the greatest culture if you're going to have a chance to win right. on a daily basis. Um, the uh, pressures uh, are a little different in different places. Um, mm. I enjoy um, players are pretty similar, to be real honest with you. They're young people. Mm -hmm. uh, I have found in my long, long coaching career that that eight. Let's just use eighteen to, to twenty two. Of course, you can't do that quite at BYU. <laughs> you better go to twenty five or twenty six, David. <laughs> yeah, but but eighteen to to twenty two, twenty three, uh, the same problems exist for them. Mm -hmm. um, the same dreams exist. And I try to remind young coaches, and I, I, I like to spend time and talk with young coaches as I do this travel through the week, that, that remind them of why you're doing this. And, and one of the terms I use, and y'all may have heard this, is the origin of the word coach. 
It's an interesting story. It was a Hungarian city, and I can't quite pronounce it, Koski or something to that effect, hmm. that where these wagons, these coaches were manufactured. Okay, and they had wheels and they were pulled by horses. And as this word became English, it was first used in the context of exactly that. People got into a coach to be carried from where they were to a desired destination. Mm -hmm. As that title transitioned to someone working with someone else, quite simply, your job is to take young people from where they are to that desired destination. That's what we can't lose. And so you can't give in to just the pressures of only winning and losing. Yeah. Uh, you can't give in to you getting frustrated how what you perceive as poor play is reflecting on you. It's not about you as a coach. If you're any kind of servant leader, it's about those around you. So that's probably the most fulfilling thing that I do is talk to assistant coaches, young coaches. They seek help. They ask. I get texted a lot from these guys. you got 10 minutes. I just want to visit with you. That, I feel like, is making a bigger difference than maybe I could make you know whether it's name image and likeness or the coach's calendar i try to address that the transfer portal ways we can it's not ever going to be what it was but it doesn't have to stay the way it is mm-hmm. and the perspective i use is why i like to go to the younger coaches and players is that everybody's talking about well the coaches are having to work come on man they're compensated beyond imagination. I'm not worried about our coaches and how hard they work. I'm worried what it's doing to our student athletes. I'm worried what it's doing to the people in the the equipment that are not paid big money. Uh, What are we doing? And and so I, I do remind ADs of this. I've talked to a lot of our ADs that They've never experienced football from the inside out. I tell them they go to the equipment room and camp in August, report when they do, stay all day with them, do what they do, wash the clothes, put them back out, and then you'll meet and see more people in a different light in your football program than you ever will sitting in your office. Whether any of them have taken that advice or not, I don't know. But the, these these things is the is they change don't have to change the value system Bronco. Yeah. It don't there's nobody making a new set of rules. Winning has always been important. Coach Brown yeah. talked about he would only talk about winning as a value. Mm. And and so what a value is are the things that should be or are important to you. What do you value in your life? And so he took it from there to you value growing as a person and the word hard. I'll tell you when my father died when I was 15 in a wreck, my mother was just an amazing person. And she told me this thing, told me quite a few things, but this one hit home. She said, David, when somebody tells you something's getting ready to be hard, get excited. You're getting mm. ready a lot better. Mm. Um, 
and boy, I had a high school coach that believed in heart, believe me. <laughs> so I got a dose of that every day. But, you know, that that's a value. It's supposed to be hard. Yeah. We're not trying to make life easy for an athlete. We want to make life better. But let's not take away their opportunity for growth. And that's what I tell these young coaches. They will coach, they'll transfer if we coach them hard. Well, wait a minute. If a guy is going to transfer because you're coaching him to be the best he can be, then you should probably respectfully tell him to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're not going to, you're not making a difference. And I'm not talking about brutal. I'm not talking about cursing them. I'm not talking about abusing in any form or fashion. I'm talking about making it hard the right way. And, man, that is something we've got to continue in college football. I, I love the perspective. And just it, it struck me as you were as you were talking, I, I've learned a lot along the way. And one of the things about becoming a master in anything or as in this world of coaching or the word coach, which I love that analogy of getting in the coach and, and someone's taking you from one place to the other, normally that's where you want to go, right? So someone's getting in the coach and saying, please take me here. And then you and I as coaches or fathers or, or others, right? We work as hard as we can to help people get where they want to go. And sometimes uh, that road has a few bumps and sometimes it's steeper, right? And sometimes the weather's inclement. Um, but, and sometimes I turn around and ask to your point, do you still want to go to this place, <laughs> right? The weather's a little rough. Do you, do, you, do you still want to go? And if they say yes, right, they're not transferring. They're staying and they'll they'll stay as they look and see you with your hands on the reins with wind coming in your face, doing your best to take them to where they want to go. Right. And mutual respect and gratitude is earned. And I think along the way, you mentioned the equipment room. One of the key distinguishers, I think, amongst people in the equipment room, young people especially, uh, that are being served right by the uh, equipment managers is gratitude. Yeah. And and I, I like to just occasionally be anonymous and, and be in the equipment room without being seen, you know, just around the corner and just kind of yeah. watching without be, knowing anyone I'm watching and just to see who says thank you, right? And who picks something up off the floor or if they throw their the, their laundry and it misses the bit, it misses the hole, the chute it's supposed to go in, right? Do they expect someone else to go pick that up or do they actually go over, pick that up and maybe grab someone else's and put it in also? And I think maybe that's what you're referring to uh, of the values don't need to change, even if possibly some of the external environment is changing. You and I should have coached together. (laughs) I kept me at Ole Miss and Duke. I kept an office for me, simple concrete block down by the equipment room for all the various reasons you're talking about. And, um, I mean, that's it. If I were a pro scout, I would start by going to the equipment room and asking about young people because you're going to really find out what kind of person those players are. How do they treat those people? Um, that's that's to me is a winner. And that was Coach Bryant's term. You weren't called a winner unless all aspects of your life were about winning. That's what he meant by winning as a value. So, um, yeah, that's it. And 
the locker rooms the same way. I, I, I made sure our guys had to take care of their own locker room from a custodial standpoint. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you're not willing to keep your space neat and keep it clean, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. You're not a solid member of the organization. Now, I understand at the end, some of that's wearing off a little bit. And that makes me want to, you know, just, it makes me sad. Yeah. You know, what are you doing at home? You know, it's the make your own bed, you know? <laughs> I mean, that, that's, and, and I, I, they, our guys did a great job of it. And our leaders would go around and make sure that everybody left the locker room because they knew at some point, after we were a morning practice team, that I was going to walk through there. And then I have a, my Alabama background. A lame dog is a three-legged dog. You didn't take it to the vet. You had a bad leg, you cut it off. So um, <laughs> lame dogs were three-legged bear crawls. And the only time we would ever do them were two times. Penalty in the kicking game or the dirty locker room. Mm. If you had that, those Duke football players were going to do lame dogs. <laughs> they didn't like lame dogs. You know? so. there, there's just, uh, I, I think for the intentional coach, and and we're going to talk about the pressures on outcome in a second, um, because th- those are real, and wow, do they have an amazing effect on a coach and their day. And so uh, I think the friction point is is the outcome-based orientation, the revenue generated, the popularity, the ratings, everything else that comes with that. And then intentionally working harder to keep these other values in place, things you believe in as a leader. And and not much uh, value, I think, and is being placed on, or maybe not, I can't say that, maybe not as much attention is being given to the character development versus the revenue development. Uh, not much is being, uh, attention is given, given to maybe the moral compass of society and young people versus uh, the CFP, right? And, and who's in that? And so, again, I'm not saying one in place of the other, I, I'm promoting and really uh, looking for a way for both those things to happen at the same time. And as as we talk about the pressure uh, and so many years, it, it's number one for our listeners, it's hard to be a head football coach, especially a successful one, and especially as long as Coach Cutcliffe was. I mean, that it's that's a difficult thing to do and maintain your moral compass the entire time. Right. That's an amazing thing, which is why David is a friend of mine. And I just value um, what he has to say. I'm wondering if you could explain to our listeners what that pressure feels like, maybe what a week is like after a loss uh, or what it's like until you win again, or just maybe how you handled um, the the very, very highs and maybe the very lows and just how you kind of remain grounded through this whole journey that you were on. Well, the the first thing I'm going to tell you is something I've said to many people, and I feel deeply about this. This helped me keep my, my myself balanced. It helped me never waver, is that I go to the deathbed. And um, 
And unfortunately, in 2003, after that, we had a great year, 2004, tough year. And then I had open heart surgery and complications. And mm. I had one of those moments they talk about, you know, that uh, my blood pressure was dropping and all these people flying in there. And, you know, you don't know what's happening, but it's just weird. I'm just going to tell you. So, but on our deathbed, let's call it that, that we're a coach. And I've got more championship rings than I've got fingers, thank the good Lord. <laughs> but you're not going to be going on that deathbed. Lord, look, here they are. Let me in. Look at all these championship rings. If you work with young people and you disserve them, then what's the term? You would rather have a rock, a stone tethered around your neck and thrown into the deep ocean millstone you're you're going to be held accountable for what you did with young people to to serve their well-being and their better uh, life period so uh, i started with that but here's what happens let's just go to sunday morning and you've had a late saturday night game you finally fall asleep and then you got to wake up and go do a television show, okay, about the game. And your eyes pop open, and always it's like, did that really happen? Oh, my gosh. Oh, we fumbled three times. We, And you're just, you get up out of bed, you shower, you put on your clothes, you go to that studio or wherever you're shooting the show, and you look at these clips, and you try not to make excuses, and you're certainly not going to put blame on a player, and you accept the responsibility for everything that occurred out there. And then you go to church. I would always go to church after that. I didn't bring our coaches in on Sunday uh, till 1 o'clock because I encouraged them to go to church. Um, and then we would come in, and now you're going to um, look at the film together. And you just sigh, you know, you can't hardly catch your breath. And then we saw our players on Sunday evening. We had to give them Monday off because of class load and getting their week ready academically. And then it's all about, you know, delivering the right message and you don't know. And so the stress of actually just losing is more focused forward. You're not living it from, God, that was awful Saturday night. Suddenly you're living it as high as Sunday going to affect Tuesday's practice. Uh, where are our injuries? You know, sometimes injuries are injuries that people play with. You know, should we change this? What's our personnel? What's What are we doing in the kicking game? What are we doing on offense? What are we doing on defense? And then you're back to a head coach saying, what's the message? Mm -hmm. And then you look at opponent film, and folks, let me tell you, you know, you may be getting ready to play Clemson, okay? Or you're getting ready to play. <laughs> so, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Or you're getting ready to play a Bronco Mendenhall Virginia team, and you're going, oh, my gosh. How do you move the ball against this defense? And, you know, it's just it, – it's, it's unrelenting. And then any head coach will tell you this. When it gets bad – 
you know the children of your coaches, you know their wives, you, you know freshmen you've recruited, and you start worrying about, is this going to be the end of this? Let's go. Now people have to move to all over the country, and life changes for children. It changes for those players that you're leaving behind and that you love. That's what people don't realize. It's somewhat like grieving a death. Yeah. When you're suddenly removed, you don't have daily contact. You don't see some of those people ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never forget it. Oh, miss, I was told to be out of the building by that night at midnight, everything I had. On this, this was a Sunday. Yeah. I'm like, okay. I had a, a guy who had built our house who had a lot of Hispanic workers that were subcontractors working for him. Thank goodness I had a great relationship with him, and I took all those people, and it took a, about 10 of us to get it all out of there. Mm. Uh, and, the, and then you're doing it in the shadows of night. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't want you seen. Yeah. Uh, whew, you know? Um, and so I don't expect anybody to feel sorry for a coach. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't want anybody's pity or sympathy. What what I do want is that on the front end, if you think you got the right person, if you think you got a really good ball coach and a great man and you can be supportive, period. End of story. Those young men, be supportive. And then all the things you're talking about, when when the stadium stays full and enthused, when people are still supporting the program as best they possibly can, then change isn't always inevitable. And change, Ert Russell, who was a great football coach and was at Georgia Southern, longtime defensive coordinator at Georgia, Ert told me, he said, there are things, David, you have to understand. If it's, if it's not necessary to change them, then it's, it's necessary to, to not change them. Mm-hmm. He said, the only time you change is when it's necessary to change. And I don't know that I've ever seen administrative leadership take that approach. Hmm. Um, it also keeps you from going from a, if you're doing a good job on the practice field, where it's all built, uh, ultimately, then, you know, you're, you're doing the right thing. You don't, two losses in a row, you don't have to go crazy. You don't go out there and beat them up. You don't go out there angry. Don't ever walk on a football field as a coach angry to start a practice. That's a mistake. You're a teacher. And the thing that where usually the problem is, I tell coaches this all the time, a great teacher inspires learning. I don't care what you know. Show me what you can teach. What the functional part has to know is the only thing that matters. And that functional part is the player, period. And players, when you do it right, you teach them everything you know, and then they're the functional part. They ultimately know more than you do. Mm-hmm. You've got to learn to listen to, to committed good players. I'm sure mm-hmm. you had many like that through the years. I, I love I love the concept uh, of a great teacher inspires learning. 
And it's interesting, as you talked about maybe the routine of, of maybe a setback or a loss, it was interesting to me um, that as a coach, as you said, most of my thoughts were the messaging and the response to moving forward and to looking forward and to applying things that we learned from, you know, the feedback that maybe didn't go well and, and moving on with a positive, optimistic and, and confident uh, demeanor. For the head coach, as you described, between right the 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 Sunday morning press conference or the Sunday morning TV show, and then the Monday press conference, uh, and then maybe the Tuesday night radio show, and then maybe the Wednesday night print session after practice, and then maybe yep. the Thursday night. Um, uh, gosh, that could be maybe the um, um, the television or the production crew would be Friday. But anyway, the majority of the questions after a game for the next game were about the last game. Yeah. And it's it. So the head coach has a very unique job while he's trying to move his team forward and apply things for the next opponent and to uh, to build resiliency and optimism <laughs> and unity and hope within a team. At that same time, the outside world, uh, quite frankly, because it sells, right? And and stories, the most popular stories are on the margins, right? The really low or the really high. Yep. And and so the, the industry basically is milking every bit of the other from the last game <laughs> while you're really working toward the front. And, and so I found in that, back to your point of a great teacher inspires learning, the players and, and everyone around is smart. And if they can see a coach that's being drawn and kept from moving forward while he's helping them move forward, there is trust and credibility that's earned along the way. And, and there's a valuable lesson because life for them as they're traveling, there are plenty of people that will try to keep them as they remembered them how they were. And that was a long time ago and they've moved forward. And I think one of the things for us as leaders and coaches is to help people move forward, know they can change. We expect them to change. We give them the opportunity to change and and we're hopeful that they can. And so as you're as you're now in this role talking to, gosh, so many different programs and they're feeling that your influence from the equipment room to the training room to assistant coaches, to DFOs, to head coaches, I'm wondering and maybe we, we close with this. Um, where do you see college football going and what advice would you give to, to coaches that are, are getting in and maybe with what motive? Uh, so maybe if you could describe maybe the context of you see the direction. And then if you're saying and you want to be a college football coach, I would advise you and, and I'd love you to hear what you'd have to say that way. Well, here, here's what I would tell coaches getting in, coaches currently in it. Um, Everything that we do moving forward needs to be focused on how things affect players. Mm. Um, starting with the coach's calendar. Mm. Everybody zooms in, and you remember all of our conversations as an AFCA board. Yep. Uh, the calendar isn't going to make you have to go to the courtroom. What people don't realize is how much of name, image, and likeness and portal is all about staying out of those legal issues. Mm -hmm. If we can take our calendar and commit it to what's best for our student athletes and focus on the calendar, we have a chance moving forward 
to better the position we're in now as far as going out and signing a player, bringing them to that desired destination and letting them graduate from that institution having a great experience on and off the field. And it's become not just a degree holder, but an educated person. Mm. So that's still obtainable, but we have to take it from the perspective of a player. Like name, image, and likeness is certainly here to stay, but why has it become a part of the recruiting process? Mm-hmm. There's no way that that's right. And there has to be a way to move past that. And um, that's the portal as well. I heard a commentator on a game this fall say, well, this team obviously won the portal game. A portal game? Because they had NIL money and they, everything you're describing there is still illegal. Mm-hmm. So how do we govern ourselves as well? This has yeah. to be a part of it. We, we govern ourselves as a profession. Um, and then the NCAA, which is us. That's the institutions. Everybody wants to holler about the NCAA is awful. That's that's the institutions. Okay, there's some great people that work in Indianapolis. I was a glutton for punishment, so I served on some of those committees where I have to go up there and I met so many of those people. And they're not high paid big time folks. They're just trying to make they're committed to, to college athletics. Mm-hmm. So there's an avenue that I would tell young coaches, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. I think the profession has to step back and look. You mentioned coaches going from place to place trying to make more money. I agree. Why wouldn't the kids be able to do that? But it's not in the best interest of that young person. It really isn't. And I have to argue with some of my friends about that. But it's not in the best interest always of a coach to take a job for, for more money. Uh, you've been in people's homes. And, and my mother told me that early on at Duke when you know a bunch of offers started coming in. She said, did you commit to a contract there? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, you better not talk to anybody else about work somewhere else. You've been in those homes and you told those young men and their parents you were going to do everything in your power. To, to help them reach their goal. And I said, yes, ma'am. And not much long after that, she passed away. So I thought that might be God talking directly to me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to do that. I think that we have to humble ourselves in, in the profession a little bit. Um, I, I was kidding with some of our coaches and telling them, people, people don't really like you. They look at me. I said, they don't like you. They like winning. Mm-hmm. I said, people don't like people that are making eight, ten million dollars a year. Just trust me, they don't. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a reality. So I think we have to take a deep look at ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I hope that that our young coaches understand that when I tell them that, and I do tell them. Mm. So you know, I'm not a doomsday guy. I believe we can. I believe young people want discipline. 
properly. I believe young people want to become the best they can possibly be. Uh, I don't want to see coaches, when we recruit somebody that's not good enough, I've never been okay with saying, well, you need to go somewhere else if you're going to play. What kind of statement is that? And that, that's happening too, okay? So again, let's, let's police ourselves and let's do what's best for those young people. And getting, getting some pay, getting or whatever, I don't want them to become employees, but the benefit from some of this revenue we're talking about, that's fine. Mm -hmm. not use it to entice a high school football player. If you want to go to Virginia and Coach Mendenhall's in your, your, your home and you, for all the right reasons, choose Virginia, guess what? You're probably going to be very successful. If you choose Virginia because Coach said, hey, we can get you this money guaranteed, then you're not choosing for the right reasons. And yeah. you know this, you're choosing not always a staff, and I've always reiterated this to parents. You better know who's in that locker room. Mm -hmm. That's who they eat with, sleep with, go out with. Those are the influencers on your child. For the first time out of their house, they're not under your roof. They're not under my roof. They're under our influence best we can, and they're under the roof of that teammates. So we better do a great job of, of, of still choosing players. Let's focus on you. Choose for the right reasons because it's going to affect the rest of your life. That's my really, I, I, I love the wisdom. I love the perspective. And, and for our listeners, uh, the, the principle-based leadership and the servant orientation of trying to help young people is just refreshing to hear. And the position you have is, is certainly – uh, a, a wider lens. And while it's not only at Duke or while it's not only at Old Miss, as you mentioned, there's 13 programs. Eventually there'll be 16. And you have a chance to influence leaders. And I'm really thankful that you're in that position um, to be able to help that happen as college football and leaders navigate this new landscape. And so, Dave, I just, it's good to see you, number one, really to you. And I'll, I, just, I just appreciate your time being with us today. So, thank you very much. Well, I appreciate you more than you know. And I, I miss the camaraderie of not only our own staff, but our head coaches and the respect we built for each other. And uh, Brian, appreciate you and what you're doing. This is important work and keep it up guys. And if I can help later on down the road, let me know. Great, Brian, over to you. Oh, we, we certainly appreciate the time, David. And uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, hit, hit stop here. And you can tell us all the stories about uh, some of those SEC coaches <laughs> that uh, you have to deal with uh, on a daily basis. Or, uh, Well, I, I will say that are, 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 who's more annoying for, for you to deal with? Some of your SEC coaches or, or maybe Peyton and Eli calling you up and <laughs> trying to get you to do something? Peyton <laughs> and Eli pick on me. There you okay. go. The coaches don't pick on me. <laughs> Peyton and Eli pick on me all the time. And so I got thick skin. I can handle it. And uh, But I will let them know one day I'm going to pull the biggest practical joke in history on them. I hadn't figured it out. I'm close. <laughs> but I'm going to get them back. Trust That's me. great. I, I completely understand that, 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 that I, I I totally get it and uh, we we will we will hopefully have the cameras rolling uh, when, when that, that uh, prank uh, ends up happening. But uh, for Bronco Mendenhall and for David Cutcliffe, I am Brian Fisher. Thank you so much for tuning in here for Head Coach. You. We'll catch you again next week.